I'm fascinated by the fact that people in some of the world's poorest countries often appear to be more content than we Americans. Hi, I'm Rick Steves. Coming up, Eric Weiner tells how he used his NPR reporter skills to investigate the ways that people in a variety of different cultures measure their own happiness. Weiner spent the better part of a year traveling all over the planet, from Bhutan to Britain, from Iceland to India, and he did it to discover how people from various cultures found their bliss or didn't. His findings might surprise you. I just think it's not as simple as, you know, economic difficulty equals misery. Uh, I, I don't think that's the case in, in any country around the world. We'll also talk about fear. I believe fear is for people who don't get out much. And we'll open the phones to hear from listeners with travel reports about how they got beyond their fears in their overseas travels. We're stepping out and we're doing it boldly to enjoy what the world has to offer. Come along. It's Travel with Rick Steves. If you ask someone if they're happy, you'd be surprised how many different answers you'll get. That's what Eric Weiner discovered in searching for the happiest places on Earth. His best-selling book, The Geography of Bliss, is now out in paperback. It examines some of the fascinating ways people in different societies determine whether or not they're happy. We'll take a second listen in a moment to our interview with Eric to see what his travels still can teach us about how people in different societies define their own version of happiness and what this can teach us about our own lives where we live. And later in the hour, we'll talk to listeners at 877-333-RICK to hear how you're stepping out in your travels, beyond your usual comfort zone. Let's see if confronting the different customs and uncertainties of another culture can actually be fun. Eric, good to have you back. It's good to be back with you, Rick. You had a pretty good sense of, uh, according to surveys and so on, which peoples were happy and which were unhappy and why. And then 2008 happened, 2009, we got this financial crisis. It's not just in America. There is no safe haven. The entire world, because of the globalized economy, is in the same tank. How has that affected bliss on this planet? It's a good question, and I get it a lot, and, and I've been thinking about that. I'll say, basically... I don't think that the financial crisis around the world affects happiness quite as much as we think it does. If there is such a thing as a happiness bubble, uh, it is a lot sturdier than, say, the stock or real estate bubble. It really takes a lot to move our national happiness. Now, granted, these are extraordinary times. And if you look historically at countries that have gone through really severe economic downturns, let's say... Uh, Russia and Argentina in recent times have really gone through some tough economic times. Their, their happiness levels dropped by about 9 or 10%, which is significant, but it's not as if the bottom fell out and people were suddenly miserable. I mean, th the fact is that our happiness depends on a lot more than just how the stock market's doing or how real estate prices are doing. With the one caveat that if you've experienced a economic trauma, say you've lost your job or your home, then yes, you're going to be unhappy for at least a while. Mm -hmm. But most of us, fortunately, do not fall into those categories. So we are uh, the worried well. You know, we're, mm. we're worried about our economic future. Uh, maybe we've taken a short-term hit, but we're not directly affected in a huge way. So then what you have going on is you have a lot of people who are anxious about their economic future around the world, but they're not necessarily miserable. I think too many news reports in this country sort of make that leap and connect those dots. And, and you'll see surveys that show that, you know, people here and abroad are worried about their economic future. Well, of course they are. But does that mean that they're miserable? I think if you ask them the simple question of overall, how happy are you, you might be surprised by the results. And if it does impact their happiness, it's probably in part because of the media fixation on they should be unhappy and they should be anxious. Right, because if a, a surveyor <laughs> asks you, you know, are you concerned or anxious about the, the economy? Well, of course you're going to say yes, or you'd look like a moron, right? <laughs> right. On your survey earlier, you found that Iceland, for instance, was one of the most content and happy places on Earth. And Iceland, unfortunately, has had one of the worst hits because of this financial crisis. They're in a whole right. different mindset right now. Have you gone back to, to revisit Iceland or talk to people in Iceland about how is their state of mind now as before? I have spoken with quite a few of my friends in Iceland via email and telephone calls, 
And this is surprising. They're they're not miserable. I mean, to be sure, they're worried, they're concerned. But a number of people wrote to me and said, look, you know, we are a nation of Vikings or the descendants of Vikings, and they pride themselves on that. Uh, we have a thousand-year history, and, and many of this history was difficult, times of feast and famine. They're used to that. As one person wrote to me, said, look, you know, it's not as if an earthquake hit. The buildings are still standing. We will get through this, and maybe we'll emerge better. Now, maybe there's a bit of trying to put a, a happy gloss, especially for a foreign writer, on the situation there. Uh, there have been protests in Iceland. There has been a change of government. But the society has not collapsed. When I wrote about Iceland a, a couple of years ago, I, I pointed out that one of the things that makes them happy is this social cohesion, that they are literally one big family, an extended family. Everyone in Iceland is uh, genetically related to everyone else. And there is that sense of sort of we're all in it together. And that, Rick, is one of the key things about how different cultures deal with unhappy times. Uh, do people cooperate? Do they get along? There, there's this concept of worried happiness. And I, I find it fascinating. And I think there's something to it. It's the idea that we can be both anxious about our future and happy at the same time. They're not mutually exclusive. And I think that's what the people mm. of Iceland find themselves in right now, a state of worried happiness. And if you take the revved up um, metabolism of, of a hot economy, whether it's Iceland or Ireland or the new Eastern Europe as capitalism runs into it, you find people get like on a fast track, but they get nostalgic about the good old days when they had time to hang out in the hot tub and just uh, have fun with the grandkids. And my take right. is Icelanders now are realizing, well, we don't have the, uh, you know, the hot cars or the prospect for lots of international travel, but we do have each other. We do have that conviviality, that multi-generational, old-fashioned, quality lifestyle thing that is much easier to grasp now that the economy's uh, not spinning so fast. That's true. And there have been demonstrated benefits to a recession anywhere. People have fewer heart attacks during a recession uh, because they're not working such long hours. There are fewer traffic accidents because people drive less. Uh, people tend to eat a bit more healthily um, because they are eating in and not going out to a restaurant and getting these giant portions. Hmm. Um, you know, I, I don't want to make it sound like the people of Iceland uh, are glad mm -hmm. that their nation is now mm -hmm. teetering on the edge <laughs> of bankruptcy or that they wished this to happen. But I just, I just think it's not as simple as, you know, economic difficulty equals misery. Uh, I, I don't think that's the case in, in any country around the world. Well, you can flip that around and look at Qatar or Dubai, these Arab free trade zones that are in this utopian, like, ridiculous affluence where there's high rises and golf courses and fancy resorts in the right. middle of the desert where all of the hard work is done by Indians and Pakistanis who came in so the local people could trade in their camels and just live in, in these penthouses. First of all, is that... I mean, that's my idea of Dubai and Qatar. Is it like that? And are those people like really happy because they're just living this playboy uh, utopia? Well, you, you painted, a, I mean, an exaggerated but ultimately accurate picture of life there. Let's take Qatar, for instance. Some 85% of the population is non-Qataris, foreigners, as you say, brought in to do the work, uh, which sounds very good. And on the one hand, it is, because that frees up Qataris for a lot of leisure time. But a strange thing happens in these places, and that is the, the locals, that say the Qataris, they start to feel disenfranchised. Uh, they start to feel like they're a foreigner in their own land, because everywhere mm. they look, they see these foreign faces, and they know they're dependent on these foreigners for their wealth to make the country work. Uh, and the foreigners aren't just doing, you know, menial labor. They're not out in the fields or, or just pumping oil. They're running banks. They're running hotels. They are, in many cases, judges in Qatar. They will hmm. uh, essentially import their judges from other countries. Hmm. Uh, so it, it goes very high up the food chain there. And I think that, in a way, is actually disheartening for the local people. I felt something similar, Eric, in Ireland even, with 100,000 poles that have been brought in well, right. during the hot Irish economy. And you went to restaurants and hotels and train stations, and all you dealt with were non-Irish people. And I thought, is this affluence? Is this success for Ireland to give their country to other people who are going to work hard? It's a very strange thing. 
As a traveler, it's very disconcerting because I think I, I was in Doha, the capital of Qatar, for about four or five days, and you know, and I sensed that something was wrong with my research, and hmm. I realized it's because I hadn't met any Qataris yet. Yeah. <laughs> I had, you know, met Filipinos and Indians and Pakistanis and Bangladeshis and Sri Lankans, but no Qataris. You have to actually seek them out. Um, but you know, the tricky thing you had mentioned this sort of nostalgia for the good old days of when life was simpler, and I did get that when I finally did meet some Qataris and sat hmm. down and. and talk to them extensively that, you know, life was was warmer, I think yeah. they would say. Life was warmer back then. Uh, life was harsher, but in, in a way sweeter. Um, but no one would make that leap and say, we want to go back to yeah. those days because life is also more comfortable. So that's the tricky thing. How do you progress <laughs> economically and very quickly in the case of these countries, but sort of retain... That's the challenge, that, how to have your cake yeah. and eat it, too. Uh, the same thing is in older people in Eastern Europe. There, uh -huh. There's this nostalgia, nostalgia for the East. There's even theme restaurants now serving dreary food from the 1960s, just so people <laughs> really? can go back and have a, a vanilla ice cream, you know. Uh, it's fascinating. Uh, as you said, they wouldn't trade their, their capitalism away, but they are mm. nostalgic about a simpler time. You, you wrote that Moldova is the uh, least, and I thought it was kind of funny, you wrote in your book, it's the least uh, happy country, and you got a lot of it angry is. Moldovans emailing you, since you wrote about them that way, uh, complaining yes. that they were the least happy, and they're really unhappy about it, and you thought, well, you guys still are unhappy. What's they with that? Prove their point. They prove their point, yeah. Well, they're, they're unhappy and now angry, too. Uh, by the way, just so people know, Moldova was a part of the Soviet Union, right? So it used to be part of a, a big empire, but now it's neither here nor there. It's like not in Russia. It's not in, well, in it's, the it's EU. It's geographically sandwiched between Romania and Ukraine, uh, two unhappy countries in their own right, but you know nothing compared to Moldova. Hmm. Um, so, yeah, they were part of a big empire. Now they're not. They suffer from what I think is a sort of cultural vertigo. They're ethnically very similar to Romanians, but they've been russified over the last 50 or so years. And uh, many Moldovans don't speak Moldovan. Uh, they speak Russian. Uh, so they don't have the sort of strong cultural bedrock to fall upon that, for instance, the Icelanders do have. And I think that's one of the keys for, you know, how does a country cope with economic difficulty. Do they have a strong culture to fall back on? If they do, great. If they don't, they're in for a hard time. Now, that is a whole new angle that I hadn't thought of, but a strong culture can be gutted and diluted and polluted by an empire that actually plants its own people in there intending to ruin the culture, like China's been doing in Tibet, or like I think Russia did in Latvia, uh, or, mm -hmm. or when I, I was just in Iran, and I felt the people were so strong with their culture because they're the one real culture in that part of the world that goes back 2,500 years without being created by colonial powers and so on. I'm Rick Steves. I'm yeah. speaking with Eric Weiner, and Eric has written a fascinating book called The Geography of Bliss. We'll compare European and American preconditions for happiness, and we'll take your calls, too, at 877-333-7425. It's Travel with Rick Steves. I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. I'm joined by Eric Weiner. Eric is uh, 
Well, his name says Weiner. He's a self-confessed grump. He's always been fascinated by what makes people happy and what makes people sad. He's a regular commentator with NPR, and he's taken quite a bit of time out to write a fascinating book called The Geography of Bliss. Eric, when you think about comparing different cultures, um, I've got some some fundamental... uh, I know it's dangerous to make sweeping generalizations, but when you compare Europeans to Americans, we're like the richest people on the planet. We're all embracing democracy, but we've got some fundamental differences. What is it in Europe that makes them happy compared to us and uh, vice versa? That's a good question. Uh, European countries, especially northern European countries, Switzerland, Denmark, etc., tend to be happier than we are in these surveys. The Netherlands I would include in that as well. I think one of the reasons, let's let's talk about Denmark, for instance, because Denmark consistently ranks really in the top three happiest countries in the world. Uh, The Danes have low expectations. In survey after survey, they're asked about expectations, and they have relatively low expectations. We Americans have very, very high expectations. And I think that partly explains the discrepancy. I think if you have low or moderate expectations, you're less likely to be disappointed. You're more likely to be satisfied or content. You're more likely to be happy. And I realize that rubs a lot of Americans the wrong way because we pride ourselves on living in a country where where everything is possible. I just returned from a week's vacation in Disney World. You go to the Magic Kingdom, and the refrain there is, dreams really do come true. They sing it over and over again in the parade there, and they talk about it. And that is a very American idea. And it's great if your dreams do come true, but it's going to disappoint you and make you a little less happy if they don't. So I think more... I say modest expectations among Europeans might partly explain this. Isn't that interesting? I was just in a taxi in Chicago, and there was some guy from Somali or something driving the cab. It was a beat-up old cab, and he was just happily drumming his steering wheel and saying, America, you can win the lottery and be rich. And I thought, well, he'll never be rich, but he was just living in this land where dreams can come true, and he was sort of just to be close to it. He was happy. I was just in Denmark, and I, it occurred to me there's not a hint of a big gulp society there. They get little cups, and they sip it. They pay twice as much for a little cup as we pay for a big cup, and they just sip it. We have Sarah on the line in Chicago who's got some uh, thoughts about uh, Sarah, you've got a, a Danish-American husband. What's your take on uh, on the Danes? Well, uh, thank you, Rick. You know, before I met my husband, I had never met a family that as a group were as happy with less than these people. I mean, they just can make so little mean so much. Before we went to Denmark last summer, we were there for a couple of weeks, and the study came out that said that the Danes are among the happiest people on earth, just as, as you were just talking about. And our minds immediately went to this idea that the Danes have of coziness. The best thing you can say about somebody is that their house is cozy or their hmm. party is cozy or whatever. And we just wondered if our assessment of this cultural obsession that they have with coziness of smallness equaling welcoming or friendliness is part of their whole way of feeling happy. What did you find on that, Eric? I I like that. I think coziness is a pretty accurate description of Denmark, and a lot of the cities are built on a more human scale, I think most people would agree, than American cities, which are largely built for cars, not people. Look, I mean, one of the conclusions I reach in my book is that happiness is other people, that basically our happiness is determined in large part by the quality and quantity of our relationships with others. So, you know, coziness implies a, a not only... Convivial. You know, a nice, Yeah, a convivial. It, it, it's not just a sort of physical, you know, fireplace no. burning and a mm. nice... It's the idea that you can be close physically, emotionally, intellectually with other people. And I think that Europeans live more closely together in a lot of ways, and that that might partly explain their slightly higher levels of happiness as well. You know, different cultures have different words that are really key to that culture, and I don't know very many Danish words, but one word you got to know when you're in Denmark is hygli, and yeah. hygli is the word for cozy, right, Sarah? Right, right. That's exactly what I'm talking about. Yeah. So, so hygli is the theme of Denmark, and they do it well, and it's a very nice thing because I was just in Denmark thinking about this and everything is well-ordered and there's beautifully tended bike paths right next to the highways in the middle of the countryside and people have these little thatched cottages that they've lived in for generations. 
And then you find a demonstration on the streets of uh, Copenhagen, and people are playing Pink Floyd's Another Brick in the Wall, and, and it's the uh, anarchists and the hippies and the vegetarians and the, and the potheads over at Christiania demonstrating to keep their freedom over there. So you got the conformity, and you got the free spirits, and you got everything in small convivial portions, and you got the people who pay the highest taxes in Europe that are actually have high expectations and generally satisfied with them. It's a very challenging world for us Americans to go visit when we recognize that arguably they're happier than we are. You're right, Rick, and I think one other advantage that the Danes or the Swiss, the Icelanders have over we Americans is that they're small. These are relatively small countries, relatively homogenous ethnically, and they don't have the burden of being, you know, the world's sole remaining superpower, which I think is not a recipe for happiness. I think actually, to quote E.F. Shoemaker's famous book, Small is Beautiful, not only when it comes to economics, but when it comes to happiness as well. All right. Sarah, thanks for your call. Thank you very much, Rick. Okay. Enjoy Denmark. (laughs) I'm speaking with Eric Weiner, by the way, the author of The Geography of Bliss, Eric, do you find a correlation between democracy and happiness? Uh, yes and no. <laughs> How's that for a definitive answer? I kind of, ex- um, I kind of expected that, yeah. <laughs> yeah, no surprise there. You know, for a long time, uh, political scientists and, and happiness researchers were under the belief that there was a direct correlation, that direct relationship, that the more democracy in a country, the happier they are. And that makes sense. Certainly people have more choice, they have more freedom, uh, control over their lives. But then you had this sort of second wave of democracies uh, in the former Soviet republics when the Soviet Union collapsed in 1990, 91. And these countries, Moldova included, have not enjoyed a sort of happiness bonus even though they are definitely more democratic and have more freedom than they did under Soviet times, they're not happier, and in some cases, they're less happy. And researchers have been stumped by this. You know, what's going on? It seems to me, and this is my own theory, that democracy is the icing on the cake, but you need to have the cake first. You know, Hmm. you need to have good, strong civic society, a certain amount of fairness, a lack of corruption, and all these other things going on. And then if you have democracy, well, then that's your bonus. Doesn't democracy kind of go with uh, consumer-driven capitalism? And fundamental to that is envy that, that sort of powers the machine. And, and envy is kind of an enemy of happiness. True. But, of course, there are many different shades of capitalism. And, you know, so if we're talking about the relationship between, say, money and happiness, uh, I would say what really matters is how you feel about money. I mean, there have been studies that show that people who are materialistic, you know, irrespective of how much money they actually have, people who are materialistic tend to be less happy than people who are not. So it it tends to be, do you derive a lot of your satisfaction and happiness from having a lot of money or not? Right. Um, The Swiss, for instance. Switzerland's a very wealthy country, but they don't really show off their wealth. It's it's Hmm. not a, you know, if you've got it, flaunt it kind of society. It's an, if you've got it, hide it society because they don't want to provoke envy in others. Um, America and some other countries are more individualistic and flashier, I think I'd say. And we have Anis on the line in Sacramento. Thanks for your call, Anis. Hi. Glad to be here. Yeah. Well, I was in Thailand uh, in Phuket for a month. It was a very wonderful month. I met wonderful people there. I made a lot of friends. And the one thing I learned was to say sawadi all the time and always to say thank you because they knew thank you very, very well. They didn't even ask me to speak in Thai for that. But they were always very kind and very gracious. So you felt that they were um, happy? They were more than happy. They were, I felt, in a state of bliss. Now, of course, you go to the marketplace, and the people are haggling you to get you to spend your money. But when you get away from that, and you get off to the side, it's just very casual, very friendly, almost everywhere you go. Now, was that related to their their Buddhism, would you say? I would think so. Uh, They are Buddhists at heart, uh, far more than anything else. Of course, now we know we have a bit of a problem with the Muslim area in the southern part of Thailand. But generally, yeah, they, I think that Buddhism really plays a great role, and they're not as judgmental, especially of Americans who are nice to them. Well, let's talk about that with Eric. Eric, what's the correlation between religious nations? Are some nations more religious than others, and does that uh, relate to their happiness? Oh, boy. 
Uh, I'm afraid again, Rick, this is a little bit tricky. Uh, basically, the, the surveys show that people who attend religious services of any kind on a regular basis tend to be happier than those who don't. Um, if you go to church or synagogue or mosque three times a week, statistically, uh, you're going to be a little happier than someone who doesn't. Now, why is that? Is that because of some transcendent spiritual experience? Or is it simply that you're hanging out with like-minded people? And as we've already said, we mm. know that you know that sort of social cohesion makes you happier. It's hard to say. Um, then how do you explain countries like Iceland and Denmark, which are not very religious at all, yet are among the happiest in the world? So mm. it, it's tricky. Um, I would say, though, if I could talk about Thailand for just one moment, um, I agree with the caller that Thailand certainly seems to me to be one of the happier countries in the world. And I attribute that to the Thai attitude actually towards thinking, which is they don't uh, believe in it on a, on a regular basis. <laughs> uh, they actually have an expression that translates as don't think too much or you think too much. And when I first heard this, it, it, it blew me away because I thought, you know, if I'm not happy, it's because my thinking is flawed, you know, corrupted like bad software. Um, but the Thais believe actually that the actual act of thinking can be a sign of mental illness, ah, um, yeah. which which would, would make me very mentally ill, of course, because well, I'm make thinking you, all the time. Well, like Thomas Jefferson yeah. wrote, travel makes a person wiser if less happy. It just makes you more aware of things and, and you, you think about them a lot. If you take these religious countries, okay, they've got other things that turn them on rather than uh, materialism. They're more confident in their salvation. Would that be part of it? Fatalistic. You take a country like India. Um, there's more of a of a sense of fatalism. It's going to happen anyways. You mean? Yeah, that, that that it is not up to your individual striving. You know, in Qatar and, and other Muslim countries, I would ask people, "Are you happy?" And I've started to notice that people were a bit uncomfortable by this question. You hmm. know, and finally, I asked a Qatari friend, "What's going on?" He said, "Well, look, you know." it's really up to God, up to Allah, your happiness. Yeah. Huh. And for you to presuppose, you know, are you happy, it imbues people with a sort of control and an autonomy over their lives that a devout Muslim may feel is not appropriate for human beings. So it does get tricky. I mean, look, personally, I, I wish I could be more fatalistic and just say, you know, hey, whatever happens, my <laughs> life happens. And I think I would be happier for it. Don't you? I mean, or, or sure, if you could just not worry about things that are beyond your control. You know, it's very interesting that Buddhism—they believe that they're really there to suffer. They're not really there to be happy. But for some reason, it, it's almost like a contradiction. They're just happy in spite of it all. Well, I think the Buddhists would say they're there to transcend suffering. <laughs> Ultimately, but but they take the long view. It may not be in this life. It may be in the next life or the next life. And if you if you take the long view that way and believe in reincarnation, gosh, it takes a lot of pressure off of you in this life, doesn't it? You know, you don't have to get everything done in your to do list during this life. You can carry it over to the next. You know, I found I, I'm fascinated by this relative spirituality of different countries. I was just in Iran, which is a theocracy. I found it less spiritual than Turkey, which is a secular government with a more of a thriving grassroots kind of thing going on with their Muslim population. Eric, have you found that there are a couple, of, a handful of countries that, that you would call the most spiritual or religious countries on the planet? That's tricky. Uh, my next book, I should say, is actually going to be about religion and spirituality. So I, I've been but, giving but, this. But some countries are so more far. religious than others. I mean, you think about Sri Lanka, Nepal, Bhutan. Wouldn't they be more religious? Yes, um, more religious in the sense that religion and spirituality imbues everyday life, um, as opposed to let's go to church on Sunday every Sunday. Because, you know, Rick, what I was really looking at in this book was culture. That was my key touchstone. What is the national culture of these places? To the extent that religion affected culture, I wrote about it. But if religion and the sort of national culture were just two separate entities, I sort of left mm. religion alone. Mm -hmm. So that was my interest. And I, I think that you have countries like uh, Bhutan, which is, a, you know, basically a Tibetan Buddhist kingdom, democracy now, where it's hard to separate religious and political life. And you have a country like Iran, where to some extent that's true as well, but you have this sort of theocracy more transplanted on top of right. it's not a citizenry, which, which may not subscribe to it. So it, it, it gets it's very hard to tease it out.
I'm Rick Steves. This is Travel with Rick Steves. We're speaking with Eric Weiner, a fascinating book he's written called The Geography of Bliss. In my travels in the Indian subcontinent, there's a lot of suffering and a lot of poverty, but I always, joy is the word that comes to my mind. There's that bulk joy of a continent of people that find meaning in their spiritual quest or whatever. And then I was thinking it relates to the joy I saw on people at the end of the Camino de Santiago de Compostela, the, the pilgrimage hike from Paris all the way to northwest Spain to Santiago that people have been doing for a thousand years. And I saw sunburned, tattered, worn-out hiking boot people coming in there, and I saw the joy and the jubilation sweep over them when they finally stepped on that scallop shell embedded in the pavement in front of the cathedral to mark the end of their pilgrimage. And I just thought, wow, there's a lot of joy there, and it's for something in a pilgrimage sense. There's a sort of a happiness you get when you realize there's things bigger than what we are right here. Right. Right, when you feel connected to something bigger, where you don't feel atomized. You know, Jonas Salk, um, inventor of the polio vaccine, was asked, you know, what is his source of happiness or how does he want to be remembered? And he said he wants to be remembered as a good ancestor, you know, that um, to be connected not only to something larger in this life, but when we're gone, to still be connected in a way, to leave fingerprints and footprints behind that uh, won't be erased that quickly. What is the difference between joy and happiness? I'm, I'm, I'm not sure. I would think that joy is, in a way, a more temporary, uh, fleeting feeling. Very few of us will experience constant joy, but there are probably some people, not me, but some who experience a relatively constant happiness. And, and you know, I'll just add one more thing. They found that people are happiest when they're just about to accomplish something significant or meaningful in their lives. Not when they just did accomplishment or not when it's, you know, way off in the future, but when they're just about to complete an important task. That's when we're at our happiest. So that's when they have meaning, when they have a reason to get out of bed. Right. And when you can see that goal and it's just beyond <laughs> your grasp, that's happiness. If it's in your grasp, you've already got it. You know, your mind is moved on to something else. When it's too far out of your grasp, it, it seems unattainable. But it's when that delicious cake is just in front of you and you're about to dig in. Or, after I'm after sure you've ate it. a better it, example. <laughs> and after, after you've eaten it, you feel guilty. It's just guilty. There in your gut. Yeah. Whoa. Right, exactly. Eric, it's just so much fun to talk with you and have our callers uh, contributing their ideas of bliss. What a fascinating challenge you've taken on to understand and teach what makes people happy all over this planet. Thanks. I, I appreciate it, Rick. And I, I will just leave you with my absolutely all-time favorite travel quote. Uh, it's from Henry Miller, a man who did a bit of adventuring in his day. Uh, and he said, when it, when it comes to travel, one's destination is never a place, but a new way of seeing things. And that's what I've tried to do in my book and in my life. It's not about getting to Rome or Paris or Tehran or Kabul. It's about you know, putting on a new set of glasses and seeing the world just slightly differently and hopefully in a more happy way as well. Beautiful thoughts. Eric Weiner, author of uh, The Geography of Bliss, thanks so much for uh, tuning us in to something that's really fundamental in how we're all going to try to live our lives. My pleasure. For many Americans, especially in recent years, safety concerns, real or imagined, hamper their travel plans. Next, we open the phones at 877-333-RIC to hear where you want to go and to find out what you're experiencing when you step outside your comfort zone. My name is Human Maj, and I like to travel with Rick Steves. In Farsi, that would be Esfaman Human Majdas, Mandustaram Ba'agayi Rick Steves, Mosafarat Pumaram. So, what are the next places on your life list to visit? We're taking your calls at 877 Rick and checking your emails to radio at ricksteves.com for the rest of the hour. It's your turn to inspire our travel dreams on today's edition of Travel with Rick Steves. We got Sue on the line in California. Hi, Sue. Thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. How are you doing? 
I'm doing great. I'm really excited to be able to talk to you. Well, thanks. What's on your mind? I'm traveling with a, a group of um, all females, uh, two moms and two teenage daughters. We're going to be going to London, France, and Italy. And I wondered, are there any safety tips that you have for us as we travel through Europe? Well, I've been traveling with different groups for 25 years, and, you know, women are concerned about where can they go safely after dark and so on. You need to exercise the same common sense you would in a big city in the United States when you're in a big city in Europe. A lot of women say, is it safe to go there? Well, that's really a personal question. Some women would not be comfortable walking around San Francisco late at night, and they probably wouldn't be comfortable walking around Madrid safe at night. I would say if you're comfortable walking around an American city in a certain time or whatever, you should be more comfortable in Europe. Europe is safer than America from a woman-on-the-street point of view, but obviously you've got to use the, the standard precautions. Now, your daughters, how old are your daughters? They're both 17 years old. 17 years They're going to probably want to get out on their own a little bit, and that's an interesting issue. And I find it is so exciting when somebody's around 18, 17 or 18, to give them a longer leash. I remember the first time my son took off to go to Venice on his own, on a train away from us in a town about an hour away. It was a little nerve-wracking, but it really builds a lot of confidence. And the kids I find, the teenage kids in Europe, they understand there's no safety net. And you got to let them get out there and, and make smart decisions. We find there are certain places that the kids are safer and more comfortable after hours. The streets are filled with teenagers just making the scene, and your kids are going to want to get out there. I just think it's fun to, you know, older travelers like to sit in a cafe and watch the world go by, and the, and the younger travelers like to get out into that river of local society and make the scene. And in Italy, of course, it's called the Passeggiata, and in Spain it's called the Paseo, and all of these Mediterranean countries have something similar where everybody's not sitting in front of the TV at night, but they're out walking around, basically flirting and uh, making the scene and seeing and be seen, and, and that's a lot of fun. Okay, well, that's great. And I'm wondering, when I read in your tour book, you suggested withdrawing the maximum amount from your ATM so that you're not charged several times for making those withdrawals. Would you give that same advice for women carrying cash? And, of course, we've already ordered money belts. Uh, how would you suggest that? Is, is there anything different for women in that regard? You know, a woman is no more likely to get pickpocketed than a man. I just think tourists, our, our thieves target tourists, men and women. They target yeah. me because they know I'm an American and they assume I have a lot of money. Uh, sure. You're not going to get mugged. You're not going to get knifed. That happens in the United States. In Europe, it's petty pickpocketing and purse snatching. And they're okay. really good. So the key is, if you're going to use a wallet or a purse, fine, but don't have critical stuff in it. You've got a day's spending money and odds and ends in it. Everything else of great value should be buttoned in, zipped up, or, t or tied in a money belt and tucked in under your pants or left in the hotel. Um, I occasionally use a hotel safe, but I don't really worry about it too much. I've been traveling in Europe, uh, you know, four months a year for 30 years, and I've never had anything that I know stolen out of my hotel room. Of course, it can happen, but the high-risk thing is your wallet or your day bag. When you sit down at a cafe or you set it down on a park bench or, or whatever, that's at risk. Be really careful that thieves are targeting the day bags of tourists because they know in there is a lot of times their wallet or their purse and their camera and maybe even their passport. So you need to be on the ball that way. As far as changing money goes, yeah, change maximum at the ATM machine. They don't let you change more than $400 or so, but it makes sense to realize with every exchange, you're hit for a fee, X amount. Right. And if you change every day for $100, every time you get a $2 or $3 fee. If you go in once every four days and change $400, you cut your fees by 75%, and, and that's real money. Speaking of ATMs, I've read a couple different things about the PIN numbers that it can't start with a zero, and I've read one place that it has to be four digits and another place five digits. Uh, as far as I know, uh, Susan, it needs to be four digits, and it needs to be numbers, no letters, because the European pads there have only numbers on them. So you want a four-digit numeric PIN, and you want to let your bank know you're going to be traveling and where you're going to be traveling, and you can up your daily allotment if you want to be able to take more out of the uh, ATM machine. If, if you don't tell the bank you're going to Portugal and all of a sudden they see some action on your card from Portugal, you may be in for a frustration in Portugal because in your interest they're going to stop that. So let them know where you're going. And at the same time, get advice from them on where you can change money with a smaller uh, expense or a smaller fee because certain banks work with certain banks and you can save a little money that way. Great. Good Great. luck on your trip. Thank you so much. We're looking so forward to it. Two moms and two daughters, you're going to have a trip of a lifetime. Take care of yourself. Okay. Bye-bye. <laughs> okay, Bye-bye. Rachel in Westerville, Ohio emailed us, and Rachel writes, 
My best tip is to stretch your comfort zone while traveling. On a trip to Baden-Baden, I visited the Friedrichsbad, an all-nude co-ed mineral spa in Germany. It took lots of courage to step out of that locker, but now I have a great naked Germany story to tell. My husband told me I'd never see these people again. He's a liar. I saw a couple from the spa the next morning at our breakfast table at the Hotel Am Markt. This is very true. Americans are very slow to, to get comfortable in those spas, and that's where the Germans go to relax. And for them, it's just strip off your clothes and get in there and, and relax, and there's nothing sexual or scary about it. It's just everybody's nude because that's what you do in a spa. A lot of Americans are kind of gawking around, hoping nobody's looking, and you get in there and you realize nobody cares. Uh, it's kind of funny to be in that naked world and get comfortable with it, and then the next morning at breakfast, you see some of the people you were just uh, hanging out with the night before in the nude. Um, it's a good example of getting out of your comfort zone when you're traveling, and it's also a good example of how Americans have a lot of hang-ups when it comes to taking off your clothes. We have Charles on the line in Mountain View, California. Hi, Charles. Thanks for your call. Hey, Rick. It's nice to talk to you. Thanks. Uh, what's on your mind? You know, I've, I've rarely gone overseas. I've, I've only been to London once, and I went to Paris once, and I, I'm the kind of person, I think, uh, just from that brief experience, who sort of just likes to walk the streets. And uh, how do you find out if you're in a, some city in Europe? I mean, how do you learn where uh, places that you might want to avoid that, that maybe aren't so safe and... Uh, in places. I mean, you can tell where all the tourists are because uh, and you can feel safe there, but if yeah. you want to get off the beaten track, how do you know you're not going to end up in some place you might not want to be? Well, that can happen anywhere. You can get in, in a bad neighborhood in Oslo if you really worked at it. And I've spent four months a year for my entire adult life in Europe, and I've got, you know, kind of a a boyish curiosity about going into the bad neighborhoods and checking things out. And a lot of times I'm walking down a main boulevard, and I know this is the bad neighborhood over there. And I dip into it, and I'm I'm kind of aware that I'm surrounded by some pretty shady characters and everything, but I'm curious to look at it. You know, you can find yourself into these areas that are dangerous, and I don't think they're dangerous from getting mugged or knifed or, or yeah. physically injured, but they are dangerous from people um, surrounding you and taking your valuables, you know, um, or yeah. pickpocketing or whatever. Um, you have to look for that. Every time I've gotten into any trouble in Europe, it's because I've been either walking or parking in a bad, stupid neighborhood. It's just if I was more heads up about it, I would have been fine. You just got to know, you know, who's around you? Is it dark? Is it scary looking people? Is it well lit? And is everybody just out for the evening stroll? You know, I think really if you're alert, I would say the biggest danger you really have is in the touristy areas where there's lots of people because that's where you're going to find the thief teams working. And, Charles, I'm just fascinated by that. I'm, I'm just uh, sort of enamored by how good they are. And <laughs> when, when I'm on the Ramblas in Barcelona, for example, I just know there's expert thief teams at work, and every minute there's some naive tourist getting pickpocketed. Again, it's, it's kind of sport. Nobody's getting knifed or mugged. So, yeah. you know, uh, tourists are, can be uh, considered, you know, wealthy, and the people who are trying to pick their pockets are uh, living hand-to-mouth. I watch the games, I watch the shell games, I watch the street musicians, I, I look at the jostling. I know whenever there's jostling going on, somebody's getting pickpocketed. Uh. You know, when I go out adventuring in the evening, I leave my valuables in the hotel room. I think that's a good idea. Yeah, um, okay. It's just really important to realize that even when you think you're really savvy, the street thieves and the con artists are smarter than we are. They just don't want to be vulnerable. I right. uh, hope that gives you some ideas. Oh, yeah. Well, thanks very much. It does. Yeah, and good luck in your exploration of Europe. Um, I, I guess I want to stress that the theme for me in Europe is things are becoming so affluent. And when there is a new affluence, there's more hope and there's more reason for people not to live a, a life of crime. And I find there's less window smashing and uh, people's purses being grabbed and so on. In the old days, when there was a lot of poverty in Europe, uh, you know, I used to measure how safe is a parking lot by how the uh, asphalt glittered because there was so many uh, broken wing windows down and just scattered on the ground. Those days are gone nowadays. And I think if you're reasonably on the ball, it's perfectly safe. Thank you very much. Okay, happy travels, Charles. All right, thank you. Bye-bye. Todd emails us, and he writes, I'm planning my seventh trip to Europe. I've taken organized tours in the past, but this time I'm going on my own. I prefer to travel at my own pace, traveling mostly by train and by foot. Because of this, I'm getting serious about packing light. The only thing that I can't figure out how to carry on is a small knife for picnicking. 
How do you suggest combining picnicking with traveling light and carrying on bags? Should I buy a knife here and check my bags both ways, or should I buy a cheap pocket knife in Europe knowing in advance that I wouldn't be bringing it back with me? Also, are there problems with carrying around a small pocket knife or a picnicking knife in Europe? Well, first of all, what you carry around in Europe is completely up to you. You can carry as many knives as you like, and nobody's going to give you a second look. Uh, the big issue is getting it onto the plane, Todd. If you check your bags, you can you can carry all sorts of knives. But if you carry your bag on, which is what I do, then you cannot take big knives. But when it comes to taking a knife on the airplane, of course, you can take as many knives and as big a knife as you want if you check it. But if you're carrying it on, technically, you're not supposed to carry knives on board. I wouldn't push it, frankly. Uh, if you want to carry on your bag, fine. Just pick one up over in Europe. If you end up checking your bag to go home, that's fine. Or you can just give it away or, or leave it before you get on the plane coming home. You know, for picnicking, you don't need a fancy knife. You just need a almost a disposable plastic knife that you can pick up with your dinner on the flight if you wanted to. But the key for you, Todd, is that you're packing light. Because when you're packing light, you are mobile. Enjoy your picnics in Europe. And enjoy carrying on your luggage and the freedom that comes with packing light. Barbara's on the line in Point Pleasant, New Jersey. Hi, Barbara. Hi, Rick. You know, it's not so much creepy or scary, but but so poignant and so real. Um, just being so fortunate enough to be up in the Black Sea on the Crimean Peninsula, standing on the very spot where they gave the uh, the word to charge, you know, oh. and, and almost seeing it, you know, you can see it, you can smell it. The Charge of the Light Brigade. Yeah, so you were aware of that. And it's so important to know the literary history and the background of these sites because then when you stand there, they are poignant and they are real. Oh, they truly are. You, you can actually see it. An amazing, amazing area. Just across the Crimean Peninsula is that great Lavadia Palace where the last Tsar and his wife and all those little uh, duchesses, uh, they all played on the beach and they were happy there. You, can, you really can see ghosts. You can oh, feel them. Yeah, when you think about those last czars. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's very poignant. You're right, and very real. For those of us lucky enough to go to Yalta, that's quite uh, oh, quite impressive that you went there. Very fortunate, yeah. Did you enjoy your time there? I did. I, I travel for a living, so okay. I'm, I'm so fortunate to be able to do that. Because that was the vacation ground for all the Soviet bigwigs, wasn't it? Oh, yes, and the buildings are amazing. All right. Thank you for taking us there to Yalta. Thank you. Okay, bye now. Bye-bye. We have Alan on the phone in Grand Rapids, Michigan. Alan, thanks for your call. Hi, Rick. Uh, well, what I want to tell you about is one of the missteps that uh, actually my children made, one of the hazards of traveling with children. We were in the uh, London Tube, uh, going to go see the Tower of London, and um, we're waiting. It was early in the morning, about 9 o'clock, so it was very busy. We're waiting to get on the train, and I looked at the train. I said, James, it's too crowded. We can't get in this one. And he said, no, look, we can just shove right in here. And he stepped on the train, and the doors closed. <laughs> and there goes my child off. He doesn't know where our hotel is. He doesn't know anything. And I'm thinking, what am I going to tell the relatives? Oh, your, huh. your child is someplace out in the London Tube. Fortunately, I had the presence of mind to yell out, get off at the next station! And I had to wait five minutes for the next train. And boy, was that a long five minutes. I got on the next train looked around at the station, and there he was, sitting, just nonchalantly like, oh, that was fun. What a cool kid. How old is your child? He was 14 at the time. 14. So, what a yeah. little adventure. A near catastrophe, really. Yeah, really. Could have been. If he uh, didn't know what to do, he could have been traveling along, having yeah. no idea. Well, Dad, all that adrenaline got you with the presence of mind to yell smartly, get off at the next stop, and yeah, don't mind the gap. <laughs> probably, you know, for people in the future, it's probably not a bad idea to have the name of the hotel put on the child someplace so that if they ever did get lost, they'd know where to return to or tell the police. So, You know, Alan, that's a great idea. In fact, we even do that with our adult travelers on our tours. Everybody gets a little list of all the hotels, and they stick it in their money belt, and then, you know, if, if they yeah. get, uh, get lost or decide to miss the bus, they know how to get to the hotel. And I've had tour members that have gotten lost, and I go to the police, and, and they go, oh, you're looking for so-and-so from America. Yeah, she's over at the other police station, and it, it sorts out, but boy, it sure is nice to have some plan in advance. Uh, did you have just one child in London, or, or how many kids did you have? I have three kids, but I've taken them each over there. Uh, individually separately. or all together? Uh, no, each separately around age 14. What a great idea. How does that, how has that worked out for you? Oh, it's worked out excellent. It's a great bonding experience. I'm a single father, so you have 
just time the two of you for yeah. you know a week or two, and you have adventures and things to talk about later. So I think it's a wonderful thing to do. Have the kids wanted to go, or have you had to sort of oh, coerce yeah. them into going? No, go? I actually, I took each of them twice. So yeah, they wanted to go each time. Yeah, my parents took me when I was fourteen for my first time. I didn't want to go, but you know, in about day two, I realized, boy, this is a lot of fun over here. Yeah, actually, with James, this first one. The funny thing was when uh, we first went, we went from Detroit to Philadelphia to London. We get to Philadelphia, he kind of knows where that is, and then we're off over the Atlantic for about an hour, and he says, how come we're not in London yet? <laughs> I had to explain to him, it's an eight-hour trip over the Atlantic. He had no idea how long it took, and I never told him. So what were some of the uh, highlights, do you think, from your child's perspective of London? Uh, from their perspective, I think it's just totally new things all the time. Um, Sort of like camping out with your dad because you go to hostels and find out-of-the-way places. We didn't stay at uh, three-star or four-star hotels, just cheap little places. We could kind of make plans as we went. We'd have you know several things we wanted to do, but then we'd change plans based on their interests. Huh. So, Great way to bond with your child and give them a sort of a springboard for future adventures on their own, perhaps. Well, in fact, ironically, my son right now is uh, getting ready to go to Africa with a class, and my other son is a camp counselor in Croatia. So they've certainly taken it to heart. Thanks to their father's interest in <laughs> investing in their well, global so. perspective. Yeah, good investment. Well, I've, I've just, as we speak, my I just got a phone call from my daughter. She's in Amsterdam right now, and she's 18 years old with her best girlfriend, and it's their first time in Europe away from parents. And, you know, you can take them to Europe with mom and dad providing a sort of a safety net, but, boy, they get over there on their own as, as teens, and all of a sudden they become quite mature and responsible because there's nobody going to pick them up if they fall. Yeah. Thanks for your uh, call, Alan, and any general advice you might give to other parents considering this? Yeah, the two things that come to mind is, one is I always stopped in, in uh, Switzerland, and, of course, your books talk a lot about Gimbelwald and the surrounding area, and that's our favorite. So um, we go hiking over there, and I always gave them a camera. So they always had something to do, even if they're going to um, other sites like the Tower of London or whatever. But with that camera, they felt like not only were they a part of what's going on, but they could bring back memories. So... Those are two little hints that work well for me. And, of course, if you get on the subway without your dad, get off at the next stop. <laughs> yeah, yeah, that's probably worth telling people. <laughs> thanks, Alan, for your call and uh, continued happy travels. Okay, thanks, Rick. Uh-huh. Bye. Travel with Rick Steves is produced at Europe Through the Back Door in Edmonds, Washington. Thanks to National Public Radio for their studio help today. You'll find links to our guests and a forum to share your comments and travel stories in the radio section at ricksteves.com. Our email address is radio at ricksteves.com. I'm your producer, Tim Tatton. We'd be happy to have you join us again next week for more Travel with Rick Steves. Rick Steves has spent a third of his adult life in Europe researching and writing guidebooks. His classic, Europe Through the Back Door, freshly updated this year, teaches the skills of smart travel. And his country, city and snapshot guides cover what to see, where to eat and where to sleep for every corner of Europe. To learn more about Rick's books, visit the Travel Store at ricksteves.com.